the question we have to ask ourselves when we make decisions is what's more important, how good the, res the decision we make is objectively or how good we feel about it. And most of the time, maybe not all of the time, it's more important to feel good about your decision than it is to make the best decision. You know, you get the best job and you think you've left a better one out behind and you won't throw yourself into this job because you're thinking all the time about the job you didn't take. You get an okay job and you throw yourself into it and you can turn it into a great job. Welcome back to the Max Out Show, where today I'm joined by Dr. Barry Schwartz, the best-selling author of The Paradox of Choice, whose TED Talks have received over 20 million views up to date. He has spent the last 50 years researching and teaching the science of decision-making. And so today we'll take a deep dive into why less is often more and how to make better choices in life. It's so great Barry, to be with you, Welcome to the Max. show. I am so excited to have you. And I want to start out by you know, talking about 175 salad dressings in the supermarket. So what in the world does that have to do? Does that seem happiness? like too many to you? <laughs> <laughs> Just well, a bit. <laughs> you know, there is uh, most Western democratic societies, especially rich ones, have essentially assumed that freedom is Good, is in, essential to well-being and choice is essential to freedom. So choice is essential to well-being. And that is true. But if choice is essential to well-being, then more choice must be better than less choice. And there can never be too much. Uh, you know, if you don't need 175 salad dressings, you'll ignore most of them if I do, they're all there for me to choose among. So that way, every one of us can get exactly the salad dressing or the cereal or the jeans or the, you know, the, the streaming movie that we want. Uh, it, it all seems perfectly reasonable. Uh, if some of something is good, more of it must be better. But it, as it turns out, with choice, as with many things, there can be too much of a good thing. And, you know, the world we are living in, affluent Western societies, there is too much of too many good things. Yes, that is for sure. And I mean, you talked about this concept first in, back in 2005 when you know, the smartphone was still in its infancy uh, and many of the technologies that we have That's abundantly right. today, really. So how have you seen this trend evolve over these it's last It's extraordinary years? because, you know, I thought the problem was acute in 2005 and that was before you know sort of the internet exploded and people did everything online and all, what that did is it took a big problem and made it like a nuclear problem you know because if you're buying jeans and they one store has 10 styles you're not going to get into the car and drive across town to go to another store that has 10 different styles you know you'll just choose one of the first 10 but now you can drive to every store on the planet without ever leaving your living room couch. And I, you know, I think we see that. Um, so the question is whether the problem has gotten worse psychologically. And that's a harder one to answer because 
you know, people your age, not mine, but people your age have grown up with this. And it's quite possible that, you know, you develop coping mechanisms so you can handle more choice and you find ways to limit your options, even if the world isn't limiting the options you do. So maybe it isn't worse for people your age. It is certainly a nightmare for people my age. <laughs> I I totally feel the same. So, so can you share with us some of these negative effects that come when there's just sure. too many choices when it comes to our career, when it comes to our genes? And so when it comes there are to three addressing. different kinds of problems that are posed when there are too many options. Problem number one and this is why I call the book Paradox of Choice, is that instead of being liberated by all the options, people are paralyzed. They might just as well have no options because they can't pull the trigger. And the study that showed this has become quite famous was a study in a fancy food store where they put uh, one day 30 different flavors of jam on display and people could, if they decided to buy one, they would save a dollar. They could taste them all. And if they decided to buy one, they'd save a dollar on any jam they bought. And a few days later, they put six jams on display, same deal. And what they found is that although more, more people were attracted to the display that had 30 jams, a tenth as many people actually bought jam. And the reason is they couldn't figure out which jam to buy. And so they walked out with nothing. So that's problem number one. And I, th to me, especially in pandemic times, the most salient uh, current example of this is trying to decide what movie to watch on Netflix or some other streaming service. <laughs> I can't tell you how many times, and I should know better, but how many times I look at what's available. I spend 45 minutes looking, and then I end up watching a rerun of something I've already seen because I can't figure out which new movie I want to watch. So that's problem one. Problem two is that we make worse decisions when there are a lot of options and the options are complicated. You know, salad dressing isn't very complicated. Jeans aren't very complicated. What house to buy, what apartment to rent, what job to take, that's a lot more complicated. It has multiple dimensions. It's, it's hard to think about the five or six attributes that matter to you of four options. That's hard enough. Imagine a spreadsheet. You've got four options, six attributes. Now, instead of four options, make it 40. 40 options, six attributes. Now, instead of 40, make it 400. 400 options, six attributes. We are likely to make mistakes. So, Problem one is paralysis. Problem two is error. And problem three, which is the one that I focused my own work on the most, is we overcome paralysis and choose, and we choose well, say, but we're less satisfied because somehow we're convinced that one of the options we rejected would have been better. And so you sort of spend your time, instead of enjoying the option you chose, regretting the options you left behind that you didn't choose. And so you, you may do better, but feel worse about how you've done with your decision. So those three things together really are uh, quite, um, quite an impediment 
to making choices and then being satisfied with the choices that we make. Um, and I, you know, do they occur to all, for all people? No. Do they occur all the time? No. But for most people, at least some of the time, one or more of these three problems will arise. And, um, and you know, the result is that we'll make good decisions and feel crappy about them. I, I don't know if you've ever had the experience of ordering something in a restaurant and the food comes and it looks wonderful. And then you casually notice what somebody's eating at the next table and you're thinking all the time, all right? the time. You know, so who needs that? You know, instead of getting what's the most out of what's in front of you, you spend your time thinking about what's not in front of you. You know, this is, this is so fascinating to me because it really goes back to this idea for me that the well-being that we get out of choices is really a subjective thing. I mean, we can objectively make these great decisions about which pizza to get in the evening or which house to buy. But at the end of the day, the psychology we have then or the really subjective experience that we create really comes down to us really looking at like and comparing. That's that a very important choices. point. And you're right, exactly right. Um, you know, it, the question we have to ask ourselves when we make decisions is what's more important? How good the, res, the decision we make is objectively or how good we feel about it. And most of the time, maybe not all of the time, it's more important to feel good about your decision than it is to make the best decision. You know, you get the best job and you think you've left a better one out behind and you won't throw yourself into this job because you're thinking all the time about the job you didn't take. You get an okay job and you throw yourself into it and you can turn it into a great job. And so, you know, worrying about how good a decision is going to make us feel seems to me to be appropriate since most of the time we are making decisions so that we will feel better about our lives and ourselves as a result of the decision. So yes, the subjective element is really decisive and, um, and it hurts people. Um, they, they get less out of their decisions than they should when there are too many options that they're leaving on the table. Yeah, I think that's so important. And so in your TED talk, you, you had this amazing quote that really you know, made the audience just laugh out loud, which was, the secret to happiness is low expectations. <laughs> so can, can you show us the difference between these maximizers and these satisfiers? Sure. I should say, by the way, that my wife does not like that quote of mine <laughs> because of what she thinks it might imply about my choice of a life partner. <laughs> but... Um, but here's the thing, and, and, I, and this idea came to me when I was replacing my genes, uh, and I described this in the book and I think in the TED Talk too. Um, you know, I went to the place where I always buy jeans, the Gap, and I gave them my size, and, uh, and the clerk said, you want slim fit, easy fit, relaxed fit, zipper fly, button fly, boot cut, tapered, acid wash, thumb wash, and, you know, and I said, I want the kind... They used to be the only kind, but of course that kind didn't exist anymore. So I spent a half hour trying on jeans and I walked out with the best fitting jeans I had ever purchased. I did better, but I felt worse. And the reason I felt worse is that when jeans only came in one or two styles, 
my expectations about how well they would fit were modest. You know, I don't have a model's body. Genes fit the way they fit, and either you live with it or you don't. When suddenly there were all these different styles, I expected that one of them would be perfect. And what I got was good, but it wasn't perfect. And so in evaluating the decision I made, what I did was I asked not how good were these genes, but how good were they compared to how good I expected them to be. And when large choice sets appear, expectations keep going up higher and higher, and the realization can never match the expectation. And so that's why I said the secret to happiness is to have low expectations. Perhaps less funny but more accurate way to put it is that the secret to happiness is to have modest expectations. If your expectations are modest, occasionally you will be pleasantly surprised. Something will be even better than you expected it to be. The world we live in, people expect everything to be perfect, and they're always going to be disappointed. Do you see that as a problem in general in the sort of modern developed world that we just are so abundant, so affluent, that we always expect the best out of everything, and that as soon as it is just like good or just really good, but not like the perfect thing, We immediately get frustrated? Oh, I absolutely do think it's a problem. And again, I don't think it's a big deal when you're buying jeans or salad dressings. But, you know, in the U.S., um, there are, I don't know, a hundred or so really selective colleges and universities. And high school kids, high achieving high school kids want to get into one of those. And they will somehow get it in their minds that Stanford is the best place for me to go. It's not. Stanford is, you know, more or less equivalent with 20 other places, but Stanford is the best place for me to go. So they don't get into Stanford, they get into Princeton. And they go to Princeton. And because it isn't Stanford, they feel let down, disappointed. They don't put themselves into the educational experience. They don't take full advantage of what uh, Princeton has to offer. So here they are in one of the most extraordinary institutions in the world every day thinking their life would be better if only they could be at Stanford. And so, and you know, so they're wasting an extraordinary opportunity and the resources that go into creating that opportunity are very, are vast and they're not taking full advantage because they're thinking they're not at the place that would be best for them. So that's not such a small thing. You can, you can wreck your college, your university education that way. You can get a great job at Facebook, but you think you should be at Google and you can wreck your experience at working at Facebook that way. And you sort of go through life with one disappointment after another because the thing you have wasn't the perfect thing that you were shooting for. So I do think it really can be quite devastating when we're no longer talking about salad dressings, but instead talking about things that are much more important. Wow, this is so powerful. And honestly, I could have could have used this a couple a couple of years back because my big dream was was getting into UC Berkeley for for psychology, where you have taught before, right? I'm and teaching there now, actually. <laughs> oh, you still are, yeah. And and so <laughs> that to me back then was a huge bummer, right? And I had some of these experiences of really feeling let down and feeling like yeah. you know, I wasn't good enough and feeling like the next choice wasn't quite as good as 
the one I was I was sort of aiming at. So how can we balance this idea of you know lowering or really getting it, our expectations to at least a modest level with with goal setting and with you know sort of you know aiming high? It well you know here's the problem. The problem is that you do want people to aim high, but you don't want them to aim highest. You know, it's one thing if you're a gymnast or, or a soccer player to want to be the best, but you don't need that in every aspect of your life. So, ha you know, being ambitious, having high aspirations and expectations is a good thing. But, but if it's so pronounced that it poisons the experiences you have in wonderful places that are not at the top of your list, then it's really extremely destructive. And the and the, your question was how do you overcome that? And the answer is it's really hard to overcome, because the I think the culture we live in is one that expects us to want the best. And if you're if you're willing to be satisfied with a good enough school or a good enough job, then there's something wrong with you, and it doesn't help. Social media don't help because you look around and everyone you know seems to be living a perfect life, right? Because, of course, everybody lies on the social media. So everybody's life but yours is perfect. And, and so you look at your life and you think, is it, am I living a perfect life? And the answer is no. And you go, oh, you know, I'm a total failure. Life is a waste. Why am I spending my time? Why do I care so much? And so on and so on. So I think the the kind of social comparisons that social media make easy for us really do nothing good. They raise our expectations and lower our satisfaction with the life we are actually living. Um, so yeah, it's a huge problem. I wish I knew how to solve the problem because, I mean, it's it's... It's such a waste. We make incredible opportunities available to people, privileged people, lucky people, uh, and then they don't take full advantage of them or get full satisfaction out of them. And that's just a wait, you know, enormous waste of resources if we're giving people great things that they don't think are great. Wow, I love that. And so what I'm getting from this really is that Sometimes in, in certain specific situations, being this maximizer, so striving to go all out, might not even a bad, be a bad thing. It's just when we sort of take it too broad, when we say that every area of our life needs to be this picture-perfect movie. Or, Is that really what I'm getting at? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or um, there is another, uh, another strategy that I don't think is easy to adopt either, which is you can have these incredibly high aspirations and know that they are unrealistic so that when you fall short, you can still take satisfaction out of how good the experience was. You know, by, by reputation, the basketball player, Michael Jordan, who was often thought of as the best basketball player who ever lived, he was unbelievably competitive, demanding of his teammates and demanding of himself. So if you asked him, have you ever played a perfect game? He would tell you, don't be silly. Of course not. And so, so, and that's how demanding he was. You know, the best player who ever lived fell short in every game he played. Yeah. But he knew that his aspirations were unrealistic. And so 
he could fall short and still be incredibly satisfied with how well he played because he set these expectations unrealistically, knowingly. The problem that a lot of us fall into is that when we set these expectations, unrealistic expectations, we expect to meet them. And that's what does us in. He knew he could never meet his expectations. Uh, so, you know, you could want to go to Berkeley and instead go to some crappy school like UCLA and say, wow, <laughs> you know, I didn't go to Berkeley, but UCLA is pretty damn good. I'm going to I'm going to get everything I can out of UCLA. Right. But that's not what people do, or at least it's not what many people do. Where did well, you end up going? Uh, Florida Gulf Coast University, all the way on the other side. Ah. Uh, <laughs> it was an amazing experience. Uh, well, I'm glad it, you felt that way. Yeah, no, but it took some reframing. And that's, that's the next thing I want to talk about, because as, as you also mentioned before, sort of alluded to, there is this self-blame that can come when we don't actually do that reframing process. When we look at it and we look at, I failed, I'm not good enough. You know, I didn't get into that school of my dreams. I didn't get that dream job. So self-blame oftentimes can, can then occur, right? Which really just makes us feel bad about ourselves. Yep. And here, here too, you know, there, it's, it's a double-edged sword. You want people to take responsibility for their successes and failures. But, but you also have to give yourself a break. And the problem is that when there are two options and the genes don't fit perfectly and you say, whose fault was that? The answer is obvious. It was the world's fault. The world simply didn't make genes that fit me better. What could I do? When there are 2,000 options and you buy genes and they don't fit perfectly, whose fault is it? Well, it's not so easy to say it's the world's fault. There were 2,000 options. Maybe you just made a bad decision. So the more options there are, the more inclined we are to take responsibility for anything in the decisions we make, that's at all disappointing. And I think it's very hard to overcome that and appreciate that sometimes the world sets limits on what's possible and we just have to live within those limits. Everything about Western rich societies is trying to convince us that there are no limits. I think the pandemic taught us a lesson about limits. Um, and probably got us to recalibrate a lot of aspects of our lives uh, to somewhat more, to move them to a more realistic um, sort of level. But I have very little confidence that any of that will last once we slowly crawl out from under and go back to living normal life. My fear is that we'll go back to having unrealistic expectations all over again. Yeah. So can you talk to us about these, this voluntary act of limiting ourselves and in, in your TED talk, you talk about this, this fish in the, the fish tank yeah. um, and why that actually may be a good thing. Right. So, so, you know, you could decide I'm only going to look at six salad dressings and then I'm going to pick whichever one of those is, seems most appealing to me. It's hard to do that when there are 60 or 600 on the shelf, but you could do that. You know, so what you're effectively doing is uh, acknowledging that the world is overrun with options and then putting blinders on so you only see some of the options. Um, or online, you can follow recommendations or reviews that take this extraordinarily large set of possibilities and shrink them down. 
there's no particular reason for you to trust those reviews. Uh, you know, their taste may not be your taste, but but at least it simplifies the choice. And so at the end of my TED Talk, I show this cartoon from The New Yorker with a parent fish and a kid fish in a little tiny fish bowl. And the caption of the cartoon is, you can be anything you want to be, no limits. And people like us are supposed to see this and laugh at how how narrow the parent fish's view is, you know, living in an incredibly impoverished world. It's nothing but limits. But from his point of view, from that fish's point of view, the way that fish frames life, and anything is possible. And of course, you know, a lot of things are possible within the fishbowl, but surely not anything. And what I try to suggest in my TED Talk is that we need a fishbowl. It needs to have more stuff in it than the, than the fishbowl in the cartoon. You know, you need more than a little plastic castle. But we need something that imposes limits on the possibilities that we consider, face and consider as we make decisions. Nobody likes that idea. Young people especially don't like that idea because, you know, somebody will impose limits and outside the boundaries is just the thing that you are looking for. And you go, why would you restrict me in this way? There it is. It's right across the street. Why can't I have it? So, and, and, and young people tend to think that this is the choice problem is not a problem that they have. You know, they are masters of the universe. They can control everything. And old people like me can't handle it, but young people like them can. And sometimes when I give a talk about this, somebody will actually say something like that to me. And I'll say, you know, I think you're right. And that must explain why the incidence of anxiety, depression, and suicide has exploded. Because people your age are doing such a good job managing their lives. (laughs) And, you know, and it's true, you know, at universities across the country, psych services that these, these institutions provide, they're all exploding. They can't handle student demand. You know, the sense you get is that 75% of the students are having some sort of relative, reasonably serious emotional problems. Um, And what that tells me is that whether these young people realize it or not, they are suffering and they are not suffering only because there are no limits and there are too many options. But I think that has a, that makes a significant contribution. Now, I don't know how you get people to move into the fishbowl. Yeah, I think uh, that, is, that is the whole... <laughs> that is a problem. You know, one thing that does it, you know, in, in societies like, uh, like, like the U.S., the amount of real choice that people have is largely constrained by how much money they have. And so wealth is a pretty good proxy for choice. You know, it doesn't matter that there are 200 different styles of jeans if you can only afford jeans that cost $20 or less. And so all of a sudden, the, the world of possibilities has been shrunk. Uh, and it is possible that when economic hard times come and the world of possibilities shrinks, people discover that they do just as well with less as they did with more, uh, as long as basic needs are being met. And then as 
as the economy opens up again and people grow more prosperous, maybe they will have adopted a new mode of engaging with the world. They have, will have learned that good enough is good enough. Um, but again, I don't know that there's any reason to be confident that having learned a lesson in hard times, you will then continue living out that lesson when the hard times go away and um, and once again, everything is available. So I don't know how to convince people that they need a fishbowl. And I certainly don't know what needs to be in the fishbowl in order for people to live rich, meaningful lives. Yeah, I think that truly is a fascinating question. I want to go back to this idea of overwhelm. Uh, because even, you know, 2005, back then you said that you actually assigned 20% less work to your students because now they're preoccupied. Yes. So is that even severe now than, than it was back then? I think it is. Uh, you know, what I learned, uh, and, and it should be said, in those days I was teaching at a place called Swarthmore College, which is an extremely select, I mean, it's basically like Harvard, Yale, and Princeton only. It's small. So very high achieving students, very hard to get into, very highly motivated and very demanding. So, you know, the workload was quite substantial. And I was discovering that um, the students wouldn't do all the assigned work. They wouldn't read all the assigned readings. And so, you know, at first I was sort of annoyed and punitive, but I, you know, it didn't really make sense to just give bad grades to everybody because they wouldn't do the work. So slowly I shrunk the amount that I asked of them. But the question in my mind was, why was this happening? You know, are they are these students less smart than the ones I used to teach? No. Are they less motivated than the ones I used to teach? I didn't think so. What I finally concluded, and it was not based on hard evidence, is that they didn't have a fishbowl. And so while the students I taught when I first started teaching, the only thing on their minds was what they had to do academically, pretty much. Uh, those students I was teaching now who weren't willing to do so much work had many more things on their mind. You know, uh, do I want to form a significant uh, intimate relationship? Do I want to do it now? Am I gay? Am I straight? Am I going to want children or not want children? Um, am I going to want them soon or am I going to want to postpone? So there were all of these things that were largely decided for us a couple of generations ago because society had reasonably strict norms about how you answer those questions. Uh, none of that was decided for these students. And so they were devoting an enormous amount of time and energy to sort of figuring out how to live. And in previous years, students didn't need to figure out how to live. They just needed to figure out how to understand the material I was giving them so that they could do well on the assignments. They sort of knew how to live because they, you know, were born into a fishbowl. Um, so, so I see this preoccupation. What I first thought was just laziness or irresponsibility, I came to realize was really students trying to solve very big life problems that simply weren't problems for previous generations of students. Wow, that is, that is so fascinating. And, and I've seen this happen even in my own life, really on a, on a smaller scale even. So in the last two months, I've been, been living here in Spain right at the beach. 
And, and, and what happened was like, it's really tempting if you're like sitting right at the beach to just go for these, you know, hikes and runs and swims and play beach volleyball instead of maybe sometimes, you know, doing some work. And so even on a small scale, I've realized, you know, that, that fishbowl that is missing, you know, before the, the whole COVID thing where you couldn't really do much and yep. now you can you know, go out and sort of live life. And I realized that fishbowl was gone and there was an you know, enormous amount of possibility or sort of how I could spend my time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's exactly right. There's a there's a Microsoft ad. It's not current. It's from years ago. And the tagline is, where do you want to go today? Yeah. A- and the idea is that the, the software makes everything possible. Wow. And, of course, this is attractive. No fishbowl, no limitations. Whatever you dream up, you can do. At, you know, it's every, the world is at your fingertips. What could be better than that? And you can see what's appealing about that. But it turns out people can't live that way. Yeah. Something has to hem us in. And, you know, in an ideal world, we make our own decisions about how to, how, about what the, what our fishbowl is going to look like. And then we live by them. You know, there are, there are um, many, many religions where the orthodox version of the religion is a long list of do's and don'ts, a long list of rules about how you live your life and what's important and what's not important and so on. So, you know, you make one big decision. Am I going to be an orthodox observer of this religion? And having made that decision, all the other decisions are made for you. Wow. Do you think that is something people should actively sort of do in their lives, even if it's not religious, but in terms of their own choosing sort of rules to live by? Well, yeah, but the problem is it's hard to, you know, it's hard to discipline yourself to live by those rules. You know, there's no one looking over your shoulder. The thing about a religion is you're part of a community. The community enforces the norms and there's all this guilt associated with violating the norms. So there's a kind of authority behind it. And it's certainly not for everybody. It's, you know, most people would think that the orthodox forms of religion create way too small a fishbowl. They really hem people in more than they should be hemmed in. But the, the thing that strikes me is that people are attracted to, to that. And I think they are attracted to it in part because it's a way of solving the choice problem that they can't solve on their own. You know, if I become an orthodox X, everything falls into place. I know how to put one foot in front of the other. I know how to live my life. Here you are in Spain with the beach. Should I run? Should I sunbathe? Should I play volleyball? Or God forbid, should I do some work? (laughs) You know, and you face that decision hour after hour, day after day. Um, And it's exhausting. Absolutely. Yeah. And what really helped me was was really creating also also pretty much like you allude to the sort of artificial schedule and artificial rules of like these are the times when I need to work. Right. And these are the activities I'm allowed to do. And there's no Netflix. Right. And there's no social media. And so and, you know, I had to deliberately do these things. I think you spread yourself so wide. That's interesting. Um, so a lot of people who have who were lucky enough to have the kind of job where this was possible started working from home uh, during COVID. Now this seems fantastic, 
especially if you don't have kids who are going to school at home who you have to oversee. So let's simplify. It's just you and your partner, and now you don't have to commute. You can wear sweatpants all the time. You can work whenever you feel like it. What could be better? Well, the problem is that in the absence of a schedule, like you're in the off, you have to be in the office at nine and you have to stay until six. Do you work none of the time (laughs) or do you work all of the time? And you had people on both ends of that. You had people who couldn't bring themselves to sit down and get down to business. And you had people who could never walk away because, you know, in the, in this world, every minute of every day you could work. Uh, and so, although initially I think people were really attracted to the prospect of being able to work from home, they started to realize that it put incredible pressure on them that had previously been imposed from outside. They had to work within the fishbowl created by their employer's routines. Now they make their own routines and it's exhausting. It's not only exhausting to do the work, it's exhausting to decide when to do the work, whether to do the work. So, um, so that, you know, that may be a less people may find much to their surprise that they look forward to going back to the office. Yeah, yeah I can absolutely relate to that. Um, and I want to talk a little bit now about some of these antidotes to all of these processes we talked about, because one big thing here really is, is gratitude that allows us to sort of lower expectations um, about, about really what we're getting in our lives. So can you talk to us about that? Well, it is helpful if we focus on what's good in a decision instead of what's disappointing. This is not, does not come naturally to most people. You know, it, it's like if you have a toothache, the only thing you notice is your tooth. <laughs> the rest of the world has disappeared. And so... If there's something about a decision that doesn't work out well, that's the only thing you can pay attention to. And all the great things fade away. With discipline, you can get into the habit of focusing on what is good more and focusing on what is disappointing less. But it really is a habit. You can't just say, you know, wake up one morning and you say, my life is pretty good. I really should be grateful. Starting from now on, I'm going to be grateful. You're going to be just the same after you say that as you were before. Getting into the habit of noticing what's good. You know, you and I are having a conversation. Uh, If at the end of every day, before I go to sleep, I have a little notepad by my bedside and I write down two or three things that happened during the day that I'm grateful for. They don't have to be big things, you know. This conversation isn't going to change either of our lives, you know, but it's good. I'm enjoying talking to you. I hope you're enjoying talking with me. For sure. <laughs> and um, and so at the end of the day, I can say I had a lovely uh, uh, phone conversation, uh, video conversation. Uh, it, you do that every night and it becomes more natural for you to notice, call out, and appreciate the good parts of your decisions. And the consequence of that, I think, is, you know, sort of an, what you might call an attitude of gratitude, spending more of your ener- psychic, psychic energy 
focused on what was satisfying, what was good about your decisions, and less regretting what was disappointing about your decisions. But it takes practice. You know, if I make it into your gratitude journal tonight, that's definitely going to be the highlight of, of my play my entire month. <laughs> you know, and I think, you know, the trick is to really do it with, with the right spirit. You know, it can become just a chore and you do it without really thinking much about what you're writing down. But, to, but if I think if people appreciate what a difference it can make in the rest of their lives so that they do it every night sort of with enthusiasm and thoughtfulness, it can really change their, the way in which they interpret their experiences in a way that's very helpful to them and enables them to get the kind of satisfaction out of their lives that they probably should. Oh, absolutely. And just as you mentioned before, it's really about rituals and practices and habits, right? Yep. For our listeners, it's not just about doing this once or twice, maybe, but really setting a time in your calendar, maybe scheduling it into your daily life so you can make sure that every single day you really get into that habit of performing these simple, small little steps that can really have a dramatic influence on your life. I think that's right. But we tend not to like uh, being slaves to habits, you know, it sort of makes us feel less human. Human beings are deciders. Habit, you know, you don't, you don't decide to brush your teeth in the morning. You just do it. You don't want your life to be like brushing your teeth. You want to be an agent. And so when you say something like make it a habit, set a time, have a schedule, they go, who wants that? I want to be a free choosing agent in, you know, with control over my life. Habits are the enemy of that. You become slave to your habits instead of master. And I think, again, the metaphor of the fishbowl is useful. You shouldn't make everything in your life habitual. But if you make some things in your life habitual, making the fishbowl a little simpler, it enables you to get more out of the other parts of your life that are not habitual. You shouldn't have to decide whether to brush your teeth. You know, it's just not worth the effort. <laughs> Absolutely love that. Now, Barry, we talked about a lot of great ideas, insights, tips, tools today. If you could give our listeners just one you know, piece of advice, one homework to take away and start applying right now, what would be that one thing? So you mentioned this a few times. Um, the thing that I have come to conclude maybe the single most important lesson from the work I've done is this. Good enough is virtually always good enough. If you overcome the habit of seeking the best and being dissatisfied with anything less than the best, you will probably make really quite good decisions and be a lot more satisfied with the decisions you make. And you'll discover that you got a lot more time in the day because you don't have to look at 200 pairs of jeans. You can just look at four. Pick one. And then all the time that you might have spent looking at the other 190 pairs of jeans, you can instead spend running on the beach or playing beach volleyball or listening to a podcast. So I think that the most that's the single most important takeaway from my point of view, is that good enough is almost always good enough. Now, Barry, I usually ask guests at the end of the show what it means for them to maximize their lives. But now it seems like that may actually be, be the wrong question. That is the wrong so. question. 
<laughs> the way to maximize your life is by satisficing. If you, if you learn that good enough is the right standard, you will live a more satisfying life than if you think only the best will do. Love that so much. Hey, thank you so much for coming on the show, Barry. It's been a pleasure talking to you. You're very energetic. <laughs> <laughs> <For sure. laughs> All right, guys, that's it for today. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. I hope you gained some valuable ideas, tips, tools, tricks, mindsets, belief systems that will hopefully inspire you to take your life to the next level. At the end of the day, guys, it's all about application. The only thing that's going to set you apart tomorrow from where you are today is how much action you take with those ideas that you gain. And so I really want to challenge you at this point to you know, not just listen to this passively, to not just consume this you know, passively, just thinking about other things, but to really take those lessons, take those ideas that you just gained and start applying them to your life, to so really start taking action and sprinting towards those goals and those dreams that you have in your life. Now, guys, at this point, I want to ask you for a huge favor. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider heading over to iTunes and leaving a review as that helps me really grow the show and reach more people, impact even more people around the world. You know, if you have a family member, a friend, a loved one maybe that you think could benefit from this content, please consider, you know, sharing it with them, forwarding to them as that helps us really build a community of like-minded people that are all about maxing out their lives. Now, guys, with that being said, thanks so much for tuning in today. I really, really appreciate it. Stay strong and see you.